Hi, and welcome to Wise Brothers Voices podcast channel. This is a bonus podcast, part of our mini-series dedicated to climate security. I'm your host, Sabrina Dao, member of the steering committee of Wise Brussels and founder of Human Rights Advisors, an international and intersectional advisory group dedicated to business, human rights and environment. This mini-series is part of a project led by Wise Brussels, supported by the US mission to NATO. Our goal has been to bring together voices of women across the world working on climate security, and through their own expertise and experiences, they shared with us their point of view on global climate security issues. We will start with a quick word from the US mission to NATO, shared by Laura Jurajic, Deputy Public Affairs Advisor. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to address all of you and to hear from women experts on the important topic of climate security. As Sabrine mentioned, my name is Laura Jurgic and I'm the Deputy Public Affairs Advisor at the U.S. Mission to NATO. We're a unique mission in that we're represented by one of six women ambassadors amongst the 31 allied members. That's all to say organizations like WISE and advocates such as yourselves are as important today as ever. We're incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to work with WISE Brussels on a U.S.-NATO-funded project focused on the intersection of women, climate change, and security. In partnership with our mission, since 2021, WISE has generated impactful discussion through a podcast miniseries featuring women who shared their experiences and expertise on the emerging challenge of climate security. We're proud of this project and it supports our U.S. government and NATO goal to advance climate security and integrate diverse viewpoints into policy formation. Through grant activities such as this program, the U.S. mission supports the necessity of integrating different perspectives into policy formation to generate new ideas and better prepare for the future. The Alliance has much to learn from women's innovative ideas, ideas that are necessary to address globalized and interconnected challenges such as climate security and conflict. With that, I'd like to end by thanking WISE for organizing this podcast series and for your cooperation on this project. Thank you also to the panelists for exploring where we are excelling and where we need to improve on integrating climate security solutions across institutions and allies. Finally, thank you to the WISE members and the audience who are listening in and contributing to the broader conversation on how to tackle this challenging problem. I wish you a fruitful discussion. In this closing podcast, we will reflect on what we've learned with this mini-series. With me, Mona and Sophia. Thank you both for joining me in this episode. I will let you introduce yourself for our audience. Thank you so much, Sabrina, also for the invitation to take part in this podcast today. I'm a staff officer on climate security within the Emerging Security Challenges Division at NATO headquarters in Brussels, but have previously served in various roles uh, with NATO, among others, also in a deployed function in Afghanistan as a political advisor to the NATO senior civilian representative to Afghanistan. At the same time, I'm also a Vice Brussels member of the steering committee. I'm Sophia Shevchuk and I'm the founder of WANA, an educational and consulting platform that works on topics related to climate, gender and security. I also work as an independent consultant where I serve clients by doing research trainings on the topics related to climate, geopolitics, security, gender mainstreaming, and intersectionality. So throughout our different conversations, 
we've gathered different elements of understanding of the concept of climate security. And here I would like to start this conversation by asking you, what are the key ideas that we should keep in mind when we want to explain what climate security is? I feel like we've been through a lot through recording the, the five episodes that you mentioned earlier, as well as the event that we have conducted on um, climate security with various EU institutions and having this unique position of being based in Brussels. I feel like every organization managed to to have a say or to have a, a thought on what climate security means, depending on their strategic interests and their values, as well as the needs that the organization play in the multilateral environment that we live in. Um, from my perspective, and I will speak here a bit as Ukrainian, but also as a citizen and as a representative of civil society and the advocacy work I do um, in my private capacity, but also with the wise Brussels, I think it's good to remember that climate security in the end is about all of us. And despite um, all the strategic goals that big institutions have, it's important to remember that it is the human beings that are the, one, the ones that are most affected by all the consequences and all the strategies and policies that international organizations implement. So for me, climate security is something that kind of connects the, the human security and um, climate change, but also geopolitical security and different conflicts and wars that are happening out there and uh, this very complex kind of interconnections is hard always to overview by one organization. And I think that's also what we were trying to bring and showcase with the whole series that we have been doing and with various experts that we have been talking to, because everyone has a role to play, whether you work in international organizations like NATO or European Union or the UN or OSCE, or you are more on the NGO and activist side. So, um, yeah, I think that's that would be from me on what climate security is and why is it important to keep talking about it. So climate change for NATO is a crisis and threat multiplier with significant implications for NATO, both on a tactical, operational and strategic level, and also both in the Euro-Atlantic area, but also beyond. So on the one side, climate change can accelerate existing security challenges and open up new areas of strategic competition. And on the other side, military forces will increasingly have to operate in a changing environment. And that means that NATO forces need to operate in more extreme climate conditions and as climate change induced natural disasters increase both in frequency and in severity, military forces are more frequently called upon to assist in disaster relief. And of course, it also means for us that we need to reduce emissions. And let me just also emphasize here one point. It is not an either or. It is not an either or of reducing emissions and keeping military readiness. But actually, less resource intensive operations can help sustain military effectiveness. A very concrete example for that is that in 2007 in Afghanistan and Iraq, on average, one casualty was happening for every 24 fuel resupply convoys. And so here we can really see how um, incorporating, um, cl incorporating climate change related considerations can really also increase military effectiveness.
The impacts of climate change can exacerbate the drivers of a conflict. And in some cases, multidimensional conflicts leave limited space to cope with a damaged environment. International, regional and national actors are acknowledging the fact that the climate crisis represent a very concrete threat to peace and human security. So it will be interesting to hear from you, Mona and Sophia, about situations, experiences and cases that you've studied. Um, let me refer back to my time spent in Afghanistan. I um, was deployed from 2017 to 2019 as political advisor to Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is a country which is already very much prone to droughts, to floods and other natural disasters. And climate change, what we have been observing there is a climate change induced increase in droughts due to the low precipitation and reduced snowfall, um, increased frequency of floods due to heavy and uneven rainfalls and rapidly melting snow, and warmer temperatures. And at the same time, the Notre Dame Global Adaptation um, Initiative ranked Afghanistan as the 14th most vulnerable country to climate change and with the lowest capacity to adapt to its impact. At the same time, Afghanistan is shaped by a history of conflict and insecurity is limiting people's ability to cope with climate shocks. And following the return to power of the Taliban in August 21, the country slid into an economic governance and humanitarian crisis. Approximately 80% of the Afghan population rely on agricultural livelihoods, and those are highly vulnerable to changes in rainfall and water availability, but are also affected by land degradation and deforestation. And this has devastating consequences for economic development, for food insecurity, and for migration. And already now what we can see is that there are nearly 20 million people, which is almost half of the population of Afghanistan, facing acute hunger. And while conflict had long been the primary driver of displacement in Afghanistan, it was actually surpassed by natural disasters in 2022. And this internal displacement is putting stress on limited water and land resources, public governments and environmental governments in receiving areas, such as, for example, Kabul. And let me also refer to the extreme situation of institutionalized gender-based discrimination in Afghanistan and the nexus to climate change-related natural disasters, because these tend to have a disproportionate impact on groups already subjected to discrimination, marginalization, and systematic inequality. Yeah, thanks for this overview. And um, I'm going to try to be also brief and provide some maybe numbers on what's happening in Ukraine, because I feel like the situation is partially a bit different due to the fact that the conflict hasn't been going as long and there is not that much data available on how climate change indicators were affected by the ongoing war. We for sure know that the greenhouse gases have been increasing not only because of the fact that there are military actions in Ukraine and that kind of already has an impact on, on what's happening and the military equipment that is being used, but at the same time there is less activity happening in terms of industrial impacts in Ukraine uh, due to heavy industry being situated at the territories where the country is currently being occupied, so the industrial production is stopped there. So we have that uh, the situation where the greenhouse gases kind of decrease because of less of the industrial activity, but at the same time they increase because of the active military activity. 
but of course the data there is still um, unavailable due to the fact that it's, it's hard to calculate and I feel like the lack of data is something that has been the main consequence and uh, the main outcome of the research I have been doing when it comes to environment and climate change in Ukraine. One thing that I also would want to point out on how the work kind of connects to all of us and um, and not always in a direct manner, but kind of still in indirect, but still uh, important and effective. And by this, I mean that Ukraine is a home to 35% of Europe's biodiversity and possesses one of third of species under the protection in Europe. Um, and we at this stage are not really known on to what extent those species still exist and to what extent those species have been kept in Ukraine, because of course there is no data and monitoring happening while the active military actions do take place. Um, we also could see how military actions directly affect environment by the recent news. Um, and by recent, I mean something that happened in May 2023 with the collapse of the Kahovka Dam in Ukraine that was a military strategic move uh, from the Russian Federation, but the move that affected the environment and biodiversity in Ukraine, but also beyond for the whole Central and Eastern European region. So for me, this is a direct kind of example where climate connects to security and more broadly, not only climate, but environment connects to, to security and to what extent this small or not very small action will have effects and consequences that will be visible for centuries afterwards. And um, I know that Ukraine currently is developing a new plan on how they are gonna be adapting to the to the European Union's uh, and generally global ones uh, strategies on how to comply with climate change and how to to provide adaptation, which for me is quite striking, considering that the country is at war and climate change is is hard thing to cope with. But at the same time, we know that this is an important one and it's going to be an important one for future because Ukraine is quite a huge territory. And I think what happens in Ukraine does affect that the whole region and how the EU and NATO countries are trying to cut down the the gases, the greenhouse gases and also comply with with the other rules in order to reduce the consequences of climate change. Um, but I also wanted to mention here the effects that it had on on the whole Europe, because due to the fact that right now the European and NATO countries cannot use gas and oil of uh, Russian Federation, there has been an increased interest in developing the renewable energy. And uh, we, I think that a lot of people view it as a positive change and a momentum for a lot of countries on seeing how also security matters kind of exacerbated the, the effects, but also helped to push towards solving the problem and implementing more renewable energy. But here, of course, and we have been discussing this a bit at the previous episodes on we hope that this does not lead towards more dependencies when it comes to the critical raw materials that would be needed for developing renewable energy. And here the example is China, but also other countries. Uh, thank you, Sophia. I actually wanted to ask a question about your very interesting um, elaborations. And that's with regards to the impact of a war on uh, food insecurity, particularly in Africa and the Sahel region, because as we know, climate change 
is also having an impact on food security in many regions of the world, including in Africa. And um, I was wondering whether you could say a little bit more about that as well and how um, Ukraine as one of the biggest wheat exporters, um, how the situation in Ukraine is impacting food security uh, in the Sahel region and uh, in Africa. You raise a very important uh, topic in terms of how the war in Ukraine and how kind of climate security situation in Ukraine does not affect only one country and even not only one region, which means the, the countries that are bordering Ukraine, but it also has quite a global impact. And I think that's also something that is quite unique for climate security and for environmental security, that the consequences do not always have the borders within one country and what happens in one small community might actually exacerbate and kind of have a, an effect around the world. And with Ukraine, I think this is one of the sort of unique examples considering that Russia and Ukraine have been the, the breadbaskets of uh, Europe, but also globally. Um, and those two countries being at war has effect not only on the food crisis again in Europe, but also in global south. And then it also has an effect that some conflicts might exacerbate due to the fact that there is hard economic and food situations beyond Ukraine and beyond Europe. Um, from what I know that uh, because of the fact that there are no grain, I mean, there are grain dialogues happening, but they're not grain corridors from Ukraine and Russia has been blocking or interrupting those. So there is very little export from Ukraine that has affected Ukrainian GDP, but it also affected the food prices all around the world. And it especially had an effect on the countries that have already been struggling before with, with the food prices and with poverty. And by these countries, I mean also Ethiopia, Nigeria, Sudan, where many people already live below the poverty rate and even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so yeah, I think that this, this is one of those examples that show that environmental consequences and climate of, of wars would have effects even beyond. And uh, if this is not, if we are not going to do something about it, we we will be seeing even more these dependencies affecting our security situation and uh, the consequences might also develop into something more because as we mentioned earlier, that the food crisis then leads to economic crisis, then it leads towards more conflicts within the region, then that would lead towards more migration. And then it kind of again would come back to Europe and we would just keep living in these cycles of wars and conflicts and migration and uh, people being unhappy. But I do not want to to kind of leave us at this um, situation where where we are kind of do not have the way out. I feel like there is something that can be done with this. And initially this is the, the core of all of this is the support to Ukraine, where NATO, I think, is, is one of those organizations that is helping a lot, but also the EU and everyone else in the world kind of dealing with the core problem, which has been the security and environment for now being a bit of a in addition to topic. But I feel like once we start talking about the recovery of Ukraine and the situation post-war, then I think environment and food security will be another topic that would play one of the core roles as well, considering the global interdependencies between Ukraine, Russia, Europe and, and the rest of the world. 
Yes, indeed. I think it is fundamental to highlight that we are more interconnected than ever. And it's clear from what you both shared that we should not let our respective regions in the world condition how we should perceive climate change threats. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, concluded early 2023 that the extended magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in past assessments. So this should be enough for all of us to put climate change at the very top of our institution's priorities. Now it will be interesting to touch on the impact of climate change on human rights, being the right to live, to have unlimited access to vital resources such as water and food, even if climate change impacts us all. We know that statistically, women and girls, indigenous people, LGBTQ plus communities, disabled people are disproportionately experiencing the effect of climate change. And regionally, for the global south, climate change is a difficult reality directly or indirectly leading to migration flows towards the global north, which has a higher livelihood. How do we respond to those inequalities in the most efficient and sustainable way? And how do we make sure to be as inclusive as possible in our climate security policies? Climate change affects all of us, but it does not do so equally. And um, as you, Sabrine, have already pointed out, there are groups um, which are already subjected to discrimination, to marginalization and to inequality. Um, They are disproportionately affected. And in general, men and boys and women and girls are impacted by climate change in different ways. And there are intersections between gender, power dynamics, socioeconomic structures, societal expectations, and many more, which shape the needs and vulnerabilities of different groups. And particularly when we look at the second and third order consequences of climate change, um, which are, for example, food insecurity, the degrees of life expectancy and health, but also sexual and um, gender-based violence and a rise in child marriage, we see a disproportionate effect on women and girls. But also to to look a little bit beyond and to look at at possibilities to respond to this, I just want to um, also highlight here the importance of adaptation measures to be designed inclusively and thereby acknowledging the different needs and higher vulnerabilities of specific groups through a range of intersectional factors and also the importance to integrate perspectives from those most affected and to include diverse voices, including of women and including of local communities. Um, I I don't think that I will add that much more on why and what is important. We for sure know that around 80% of people affected by climate change are women. And this is the general statistics provided by the UN. But also I think it's important to acknowledge that women are not only the victims, but also the drivers of the community changes. And um, here comes the the argument that you brought earlier that we need to include women's voices into the discussions like this one we're having here with WISE on climate security conversations, but also at a higher level discussions when it comes to COP discussions that have been happening. And um, I know that we have a, a podcast with WISE as well, from last year after COP27, where there is a lot of statistics and insights provided to missing voices of the underrepresented communities and women during the high level 
um, diplomatic discussions when it comes to climate change in general. I, I, I do think that for me that including the voices is one of the first and most important points that we, we need to recognize when we talk about this, but also just including the voices is not the only think that by putting people at the table, we will sort all the problems. We, of course, need to apply the intersectional lens when it comes to the discussions that we are having and kind of making sure that those people who speak do present different voices and they do present different insights as well as represent people who are affected the most by climate change and the ones who are on the ground and who might not always have a possibility to, to join and share their insights and make sure that the policies that we discuss and the solutions that we discuss also have sort of a gender mainstreaming and intersectional lens and do consider different points of view and uh, at different stages of the design of the policies, but also the decision-making processes and during the implementation phase that all of those parts do consider the intersectional approach and different voices. And Sophia, just to um, make another practical comment on that, uh, I think what is key here as well is to really integrate uh, civil society into all of the discussions we have, and particularly also to include women's rights organizations and um, women leaders into discussions and giving them a voice. Yes, definitely. And I really agree on the need for an intersectional approach to climate security. I think this is our reality. So we as international organizations, civil society, NGOs, and different type of organizations, we should start preparing for the future where we will have many more conflicts happening and many more situations when it comes to climate change or environmental consequences or even worse. And we should step out from only kind of um, making sure that the fire goes down, but also preparing and prevention and dealing with the anticipation of what could be the effects and kind of act a bit more in advance rather than once something already happened. Because if we have, for instance, the nuclear attack, then afterwards there is not really much we can do. Uh, and I know that like in the case of Ukraine, people right now are educating themselves. What do they need to do and what would be the consequences and how they can prevent the harder consequences and uh, how would they need to react and which, yeah, where to hide, how to hide, how to hide the cattle and then which food would still they will be able to eat and so on. And this is just a small community example of what's happening in Ukraine. But of course, if we talk about international organizations, they have many more tools in order to see what are the things happening in a more holistic and helicopter view around the world and maybe exchange the data, talk to people, communities, government, and making sure that those consequences are not there and we will be able to prevent because I, I believe that with current tools, whether that is a satellite data or um, mechanisms that calculate the consequences, we, we are able to prevent many more wars and conflicts and hardcore effects that can happen due to climate change or environmental disasters. We do need to, to get started. We need to make sure that our societies are prepared, um, are resilient. Uh, we, we have to incorporate climate change into our resilience um, efforts. And I mean, from a NATO perspective, what we already see is uh, both in Europe and across the Atlantic, the military stepping in more and more in response to natural disasters, whether it is wildfires or floods. And we also do see an increased demand um, for our militaries to step in in a disaster response and in humanitarian relief. 
and that's um, that's something I expect to to uh, to increase even more. And another um, factor to watch is as well the nexus between conflict and climate change. Um, I mean, right now, today we see of the 20 countries which are which are most vulnerable and least prepared for climate change, 12 are in conflict. And while there is no direct causal link between climate change and conflict, most countries enduring conflict are less able to cope with climate change because their ability to cope is exactly limited by conflict. And here we come back to a point we mentioned at the beginning that climate change is a threat multiplier of existing security challenges. And that's why it's um, really key to integrate climate change considerations in, into conflict prevention strategies, into stability uh, efforts, into peace building. But also when we look a step further um, that, and we look at uh, the causes of instability in many um, countries and we look at non-state armed groups um, or, or terrorist organizations, but we really integrate climate security considerations in all of our policies. Um, also, for example, with regards to counterterrorism and preventing and countering violent extremism strategies. So to sum up, I think um, what is key is we need to mainstream climate security considerations into everything we do. We cannot treat it in a silo. And I think there have has been many steps being made with regards to um, many governments uh, having drafted climate security strategies and action plans. Right now, what is key is that we start to implement it. I agree with you, Mona, especially on the last point. And um, this kind of also connects a bit to the last event that we had that you can also watch online because we have a recording. We have discussed many, many strategies that the EU NATO has developed at different levels. And there are more and more coming in, but I feel like what we still struggle with is the implementation of those strategies and really trying out what works, what doesn't work, engaging with different communities instead of coming up with more and better ones. A growing concern for the global north that is at the center of climate security challenges right now is the Arctic. This case illustrates different dynamics involving major climate disruption, conflict between powerful and influential nations like China, the US, Russia, and also divergent economic ambition. What is NATO's position on the Arctic? So the Arctic is a key region for NATO and for our partner countries. And um, the Arctic is a region where we observe rapid global warming. Um, actually four times the global average in warming. And that, of course, has consequences for the Arctic's ecosystems, for natural resources, and also um, for the livelihoods of its inhabitants. One of those consequences is that disappearing ice, uh, melting ice, is opening up new shipping lanes and trade routes between Asia, Europe, and North America for longer parts of the year. And that's an opportunity for economic growth but also a risk for tensions and conflict linked to economic competition. Furthermore, climate change is making um, the Arctic's resources more accessible, whether it is subsea oil or gas reserves or fish stock. And that is also leading to increased economic activity, also raising questions of ownership of resources, particularly if we look to overlapping claims on continental shelf extensions. Russia has significantly increased economic and military activity in the Arctic, including modernizing and expanding spaces and military infrastructure. And China, which 
self-declared a near-Arctic state is increasing maritime activities, including also in the framework of a polar silk route linking Europe to China. We've been talking earlier about the linkages between climate security and human security. Climate change is also threatening the way of living of indigenous communities in the Arctic, putting traditional livelihoods at risk and threatening culturally important sites and customs. I think it is fair to say that climate change is leading to the most important economic transformation that our generation and also humanity at large is facing since the Industrial Revolutions era. Partnerships and collaboration between private and public sector is vital to address a potential multidimensional crisis like climate change. COP uh, is one of those examples where we see, and at least from Paris Agreement that already has marked, I think, eight years or so, it has been one of the examples where which showed that, that it is possible to have an agreement at the multilateral level and we would have to work all together. And Mona earlier talked about the Arctic. It's also one of the regions where, unfortunately, there is no one country or one organization that can deal with it because different countries have different access to the to the region and also they have different priorities and uh, activities that are happening there. It also shows that we cannot just work on our own, but we would have to engage in cooperate with those countries. And currently the war in Ukraine does not help when it comes to cooperation with Russia. But if we look at cooperation with China and if you listen to different EU and NATO stakeholders, they all mention that we need to have China engaged and we would not be able to afford on having war with China as well, because then that would limit the dialogue processes or the dialogue would keep on going when it comes to climate security. So I think those are one of the key points to consider when it comes to multilateral cooperation. And yet I think that this is one one kind of one side of the coin and on the other side of the coin with climate change and a lot of shifts towards renewable energy. There is a huge fight happening when it comes to critical raw materials all around the world. And we see China leading that, but then the US and EU and Russia are stepping in. And if we talk about collaboration with countries from Global South or Latin America, um, and even in between, we, we see that there are many more bilateral agreements emerging between different countries um, when it comes to collaboration on resources and kind of trying to adapt to the new realities. So here I think that multilateral cooperation for now is not the priority, yet I'm afraid that it would have to become because if we want to survive all as a society, we would have to see how much who needs and then how can we share and in order to avoid kind of stepping in into new neocolonial type of narratives, but actually build them in a climate-just and human-just way. Sophia, you have been talking about the importance of, um, of cooperation and uh, of cooperation between uh, governments, uh, international organizations, civil society, scientific co communities and others. And I would, I would say that this is really key in, um, in, sh in shaping inclusive adaptation measures. With regards to uh, NATO, what we are observing is that many allied armed forces have already been starting to take a range of adaptation measures, including, um, for example, integrating climate security considerations when building new infrastructure or retrofitting critical infrastructures. 
but also taking into consideration the new scenarios that climate change will bring in planning and training and exercising, introducing environmental criteria for the procurement of different types of products and services, integrating the subject of climate change and security into the curricula of allied military education institutions, and also preparing for changes in mission profiles, military tasking, and standard operating procedures. And a tool which NATO has developed in order to share these best practices of adaptation measures is uh, the NATO Climate Change and Security Action Plan and Compendium of Best Practices, which can be accessed publicly on the NATO website. Okay, to make sure that we can end this podcast on a positive note, do you have anything uplifting to share regarding the direction that we are taking to address present and future climate security threats? What we have been seeing um, in the past years is that also more and more allied states have been putting climate security high on the agenda, have been developing climate security policies and strategies, and have started to put best practices in place. And um, I'm very hopeful that this will continue in the next years and that we will be able to work together in order to find more solutions in order to address the challenges posed by climate change. Many more organizations, even such that are mainly focused on security and defense as NATO, they still put climate security high on the agenda. I think now the question will be a lot about implementation and also considering that the time is limited. Um, I'm, I'm a bit less hopeful in terms of if we're going to manage, but I'm pretty sure that um, not only me and not only you understand this, yet I'm hopeful on the fact that it's also a lot in the rights of all of us and all of us have a role to play, starting from ordinary citizens who will go and vote next year in the European elections. Please do read the agendas of the next politicians who are going to be shaping the EU policies, because that is in one of the ways how you can contribute and how you can contribute to the changes and, the, and hopefully the ones that will lead us to a better climate just world, but also how we kind of hold those politicians and um, people sitting in the institutions accountable. Um, and also, if you go and listen to our previous podcast episodes, we actually talk a lot on how on every individual level we can contribute to positive changes from changing your own lifestyle, but also joining different initiatives, organizations, how you invest in your daily life, or I don't know, there are many, many creative ways on, on how we can become part of the changes and hopefully, yeah, prevent the, the biggest threats and the biggest danger from, from happening. I will end by saying that what is important here is to make sure that we continue to talk about this subject that is on top of the priorities of our leaders and that we also continue to educate ourselves. This is what we've tried to do with this mini-series and we hope that you enjoyed it and that you learned a lot of things. And that was our last episode in this mini-series on climate security. We want to thank you for being with us, listening, asking your questions and engaging, as well as to the US mission to NATO who sponsored this podcast and enabled the Wise Brussels to keep going with our podcast mini-series.